everyone out there, if they decide to go for it, have kids. Everyone's going to have parents that pass. Some of you may also have kids and you may become that someday. So that full circle aspect of, you call it equalization, it's inevitable and everyone will handle it differently. And the best advice I can give is actually to not worry and think about that and try and spend the time you have before you reach that moment with them. Enjoy the verbal battles. Enjoy the fight about whatever stupid Christmas gifts or something. I don't know. All of it seems so stupid to me now because I definitely had arguments with my parents for years. All the things we argued about and all of it seems so stupid now. You can't worry about it because it's inevitable. And so you just got to stay present. And even if someone's being difficult in your life, not even parents, everybody around you, man, I, we all end up somewhere in that. When you finish that 18th hole, we all end up at the 18th hole. To use a golf analogy, I don't play golf. So I don't know if that fully applies. But so my advice would be, don't worry about when it happens because when it does, it'll be too late. Enjoy it now. Welcome to The Wild Show with your hosts, Will Chang, Lee Chang, and Andrew Su. Hi, this is Will Chang, and as always, I have my co-host, Lee Chang, and Andrew Su with me. Hey. Hello. Today, we have a special guest. The last episode, we talked to Rich Shu, and he asked us who our favorite podcast guest was, or for episode. And I think for all of us, I think it's still Joe Chaz. Joe was one of our first podcast guests. Lee and me brought him on to kind of as like an experiment. And Joe did such a great job of telling a story and being vulnerable and sharing kind of like his experiences. I think it ultimately helped a lot of people. So that was recorded and published three years ago. And over the last three years, Joe and I have gotten closer. And there's been a few times where I would drive him home like a one hour long car ride or we would have lunch together and you would tell me about what's going on and as always be super vulnerable. And Joe's always been somebody that I looked up to and his experience has always helped me kind of give me perspective and think about what's important. And I wanted to bring him on this podcast today so that he can share with our audience so that he can help the audience as well. So welcome, Joe. Hey, thank you very much, Will. It's great to be here. And I'm really glad I could help those four people that listen to your <laughs> podcast. <laughs> oh, this is amazing. It's like a throwback to backhanded compliments for the first episode. <laughs> I also just want to add that to prepare, because Asians always do their homework, I actually looked up the original podcast from September of 2020 like we were just talking about a moment ago, you know, it was just the two of you then. So, so now you've, you've become truly wild and <laughs> now there's three of you. But I wanted to say congratulations to you guys on, on not only sticking with it, but I think you really have achieved your mission. You know, I've heard feedback about this and I actually have met people who've actually heard the podcast of my, not only of yours in general, but my specific episode. And it made me feel like I got my 15 minutes of fame. So thank you for that. And congratulations <laughs> on your success. And if you're revisiting me three years later, I hope you guys interview me again in 20 years right before I die so I can have one last like hour of glory. Anyway, congratulations to all of you guys. Congratulations to you know you two for uh, leave at the very start. I'm really happy to be back. And I listened to myself, by the way. I couldn't listen to the whole thing. It was too cringy to hear my voice. By the way, I'd never heard it because of this I actually listened to what I said three years ago. And surprisingly enough, I generally still agree with myself. I'm completely still wrong about everything. But it was really fun, as cringy as it was to actually hear my voice. It was really weird. But 
yeah, it was fun to be with you. I'm really looking forward to this time now. So thanks again. And well, let's entertain the six listeners that you guys have. And sounds good. You guys grew by 50%. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So there's actually like three things I wanted to cover. One of the things is a lot has changed since three years ago. You live in a different place now. I don't want to get into that yet. That's like the second thing I want to cover. But the first thing I want to cover is the continuation of part one. So in, in part one, we actually talked about the suffering you went through in order to basically take your parents' company, build it up, and finally sell it. And like that was the end of the story that I heard at that time. And then later on, like you started telling me about like what happened afterwards. And you don't really hear much about you know, what happens after you sell. And for a lot of people, including myself, it's like selling your company is like the holy grail. And you never really think about like the reality of what that is like. And so I would love for you to take us through selling the company. Sure. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about it because it's another whopper of a story. And I wish these things were true because then they'd be just wonderfully made up stories. But this is what happened. And what's interesting is, yeah, it had a moment where I was riding on cloud and I had achieved my goal and lived the dream and finally got rid of this thing that was a bit of an albatross around my neck because it wasn't my original plan with life's plan. So if any of you remember episode one, there were two parts about my life. The first that sounded really good and the second where everything went to shit. The selling of the business was you know, all around my parents' situation. And they, for, again, just to recap from last time, uh, my parents got a divorce or I divorced my parents. And along the way, they had a family business and I had taken over the business. I actually did the, what I called reverse estate planning, where I put money into the business, I put money into their pockets. And it was my job to help them with their retirements and my own. The problem is, when you do that, you've got to do that well. You've got to sell it to somebody that stays solvent. And one piece about that story that didn't make it in episode one, which will be hopefully not too long in episode two, because it is a bit like picking at a scab <laughs> from a million years ago. This is 2006, 2007. So do the math. It was a long time ago. But I sold the business to a company that six months later filed chapter 11. And for anybody who's dealt with anything like that, and I had never been around bankruptcy, I'd never been around a chapter 11. And thankfully, I've never been again. And I wouldn't wish that on anybody, unless you're the ones filing to screw your creditors. I was a t I, I, I sold the business and my deal had an earnings. So half my amount was to be paid over a subsequent number of three years. And what happened to me, this isn't so much like soul searching, like, oh, how do you find happiness? How do you find this is very much business 101, business 102. Cash is king. If I had known then what I know now for that kind of business in that kind of industry, no one could have known, like no one could have predicted the future. This is right before the crash of 2008. And so when they bought the business in 2006, everything was great. So they gave me a higher price to keep me around. And I said, sure, that's great. So I got a higher price instead of all cash up front, which would have been a lower number. I took the higher number and an earning. And just the mechanics of that, if things work out, are perfectly good. You get more money, you stick around, and you have time to figure out what you want to do next. Like that's a pretty typical path. Unfortunately, if you're unlucky and the economy melts down, if the acquirer goes into chapter 11 and then subsequently realizes that there's millions of dollars on the hook for you and they try to get rid of you, you've got to get lawyers. And lawyers cost money. And in bankruptcy, 
the bankruptcy courts are trying to get that company through the system. And so there is a bias. So it's not like regular court where you deal with a judge and you can typically fight in a civil tort or contract dispute. You're dealing with a bankruptcy judge, which has a bias to get this company through bankruptcy. So long story short, I mean, this is really just a mechanical discussion, but I basically got the short end of the stick. I was a top 10 creditor in a $2 billion bankruptcy as an individual. So I mean, this is a manufacturing company. So there are other Fortune 500 companies listed in the bankruptcy, the creditors. <laughs> and then there's me, Joe Cha, individual. So I mean, I don't know. Where do you want me to go with this, Will? Do you want more of like how much I lost, how miserable I was? Or do you want to know about like how miserable I was? Let's start with the beginning where can you tell us a little bit about how the company that you sold to because you said that you didn't expect it, right? Could you tell us like a little bit about why you didn't expect it? Like what was this company that you sold to? Oh, okay, sure, right. So I bought my mom and pop's literally small mom and pop business. And I had built it up seven times revenue and I sold it for a little over, I mean, I we did good for a, a crappy industry. It was the printing industry. And we bolted on some technology and I did all the things that you would expect an MBA to do to try and get out and try and get as much money as you can. And I was the only guy. Luckily for the no partners, you know, there was no downside to anyone else except me. So we sold ourselves in the printing business to the second largest printer in the world. It's a global corporation, billions in sales, European operations, Latin American operations, facilities all across the United States and Canada. I mean, it was a big company. It felt good all the way around because they plugged me into their network and I was running as a group president for not even a year. Actually, no, it was probably more than a year. Anyway, for purposes of this story, like it was a good sounding story. Build up the business, put technology in it, make it attractive to an acquirer, sell it to a big guy that uses you to run a division of what you were doing. Like that was it. Cool. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Well, when things go well, that is a great story. But basically, they were running into their own financing problems. Uh, they had a lot of debt on their books. And when 2008, hit, there were rumblings about in the credit markets in 2007 when we did our deal, they couldn't get their financing straight. Long story short, yeah, they were big. They were billions in revenue, more billions in debt. And when they hit the wall, I was in the back seat. And when we crashed into the wall, I crashed with them. What was the earnout and how much money were they trying to take from you? Or how did so I got, all that work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In real today dollars, it's probably like a 20 million today deal. And I got half up front, half over three years. And the problem was the earnout. So these guys, these Canadian bastards in Montreal, who in their French accents were like, this is too much money. We do not want to pay you. So it's cheaper for us to try to fire you, right? And I'm like, fuck you. This is my earnout. Like, and that's the other thing. Lawyers. Oh my God. Thirty lawyers out there, the good lawyers, keep doing your job. The shitty lawyers, you can bleep this part out. Fuck you. Shitty lawyers, worst thing because there was some vague language and when you're getting acquired, so this part will be valuable for the people who want to like learn and do business, okay? Earnout language, what I should have had was crystal clear language. Anything happens, I screw a midget. I burn a building. Doesn't matter. What I should have gotten was earnout terms that were way clear that no matter what, if anything happens, I just get my money. Like, you fire me, fire me, then I get my money. That can't happen in the world. I didn't push for that because I was already getting such a good deal. The CEO 
was an HBS alumni. And he was like, we're going to take over the world. You're going to be my right-hand man. I'm like, yeah, sign me up. And when things were looking good, that was a great deal because they paid a good number for my business. So I had stars in my eyes and I didn't look at the language. And it wasn't bad language. The problem, it was vague language. And in bankruptcy court, any leg that the company can stand on to not pay people, the bankruptcy judge, this is not a regular judge, I mean, people out there who have gone through it maybe have a different story. I'm just telling you my story and what happened to me with as minimal kind of re-narrativing as possible. But yeah, I, I didn't pay attention to the language of my contract the way I should have. And the lawyers who are on my side were fucking dipshits. You can tell I really don't care about this at all. I'm perfectly over it. But yeah, that was how many, many years ago. And the lesson there is, yeah, good attorneys are worth their weight in gold. Bad attorneys are worth their weight in lead. And they will sink you if you don't pay attention. So it's on you to pay attention. So I own that. But they try to get me on canceling my earnout. And I will say the other thing that I learned, because this was an international bankruptcy, there was jurisdiction all over the place in, in multiple countries. So it was complicated. You guys can bleep this. I didn't use profanity last time. I noticed when I was listening. So you asked this question about this topic. So you're going to get profanity. So it was a very complicated bankruptcy. It was in multiple countries in the US part thankfully, better lucky than smart, right? They filed six months and three days after my close. And in the United States, there's a clawback within six months. So the only thing I can be thankful for is nothing to do with the quality of my attorneys, but everything to do with the timing of the stars of when this company crashed and hit the wall. They hit the wall 72 hours after they could have also clawed back the original. And that would have been horrible because, again, bankruptcy court is biased towards the companies. So you got to be careful. Anybody out there getting acquired, read all the paperwork yourself. If there's an earnout, get the language that gets you protected. So even if you have sexual relations with a midget, excuse me, whatever, bleep all that out, you can still get your money. Because if you aren't careful, things happen. The world's a crazy place. If you aren't looking, half your exit can basically get vaporized. The other thing I will say in terms of learnings is really big ballers, unless they're extremely lucky, they need to be extremely clinical and play the game for their entire careers just to make money. You cannot get emotional, you cannot get mad, you cannot get happy, you just have to focus on the numbers. That process took me about six months where I spent money of my own on my lawyers and the company in bankruptcy spent bankruptcy dollars, didn't cost them a thing. So they are pretty happy to keep negotiating, meet in New York, blah, 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 like, there was no sense of urgency on their side. So I got sweated out till I could not take it anymore. And then we settled. I had a great case. I could have kept on going. Yeah, no, I, I was going to ask about the, sorry, the clawback. So that would have been for the lump sum up front. Yes. So yes. that was safe, right? Because yes. you were saved by 72 hours. I was saved unwittingly and with no forethought of my own. Just the sheer luck of when the economy crashed and when my deal crashed. I missed that window by three days. Yeah. If that had happened, I wouldn't be on this podcast right now. I probably would have killed myself. That is crazy. So you're also safe from, we'll save all your uh, sexual escapades with uh, dwarfs and trolls for uh, yeah, another yeah. podcast. But. Yeah, you guys can bleep all that out. If there are any children listening, sorry in advance, but you guys asked that topic and we could talk about life and philosophy. But when you talk about me getting screwed like that, yeah, you get the profanity because even after all these years, I'm a human being, man. It sucked to have that happen. And 
I kick myself a lot over it and I'm largely over it, but you can tell like it's still a scab. I feel it. I mean, that's something that's, I mean, I guess, like you said, ultimately the onus, I guess, is on you and your lawyer team. But perhaps would you say like some of the finer details in these contracts, because it is not obscure per se, but it's just something unexpected. I guess like you wouldn't expect selling your company to the second largest in the sector that they would literally go under within less than a year. Yeah, absolutely. In hindsight, and if you were going to advise somebody, yeah, you, you want to tell them about those kinds of things. But you got to cover all your bases, right? Like, yeah, in hindsight, I wish I'd done that more. But at the time, I really just wanted to get the deal done. I was excited about the number. I was excited about the acquirer because the CEO was really, it was, I got along with the CEO. He had a plan. I liked his plan. And I felt so lucky to get out of this business that I did not want from the beginning. I closed an eye around the details of it. And I regret that. But thankfully for those 72 hours, it wasn't a complete destroyed situation. So I just come back to the last part about that, which if somebody's selling their business and they're listening to this, better lucky than smart. Make sure your acquirer does not file for chapter 11 within six months of your acquisition. And no matter what, don't let your emotions enter the negotiation process. So what did I learn? Like, here's that part of the story. It sucked. What did I learn besides the six-month rule and uh, watch your earnout clauses? Not to be emotional. So when we did settle and we settled, got warrants, and I was so, I want to use the word disgusted. And since I used profanity before, disgusted is probably the same level of term, although I don't like that word. I was still bummed out by it. I wanted nothing to do with it. I not only experienced the bad thing, because I was emotional, I sold those warrants because I wanted nothing to do with those people in that company. Mm. <laughs> I regret it later because they got bought out of bankruptcy and those warrants would have been worth a couple million bucks and I sold them for $15,000. Wow. You know, it was the crash. I sold them during the crash when the market had tanked, no business confidence. And I wish I'd listened to my wife at the time because she's like, why don't you just hold on to them? You never know. Like, between zero and 15,000 for what we went through, she's like, just hold on to it. And I was so convinced about how bad it smelled that I did not like the smell of money. So I basically just said, no, 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 I'm emotional. I'm a diva. I don't want anything to do with this. I'm going to sell it. And so my broker's like, okay. And he's like, I couldn't find anybody for it. I found somebody who will take it for $15,000. Do you want it? I'm like, yes. And again, that's not a regret because when I die, I'm not going to care about that deal. I'm going to care about my kids. But just thinking about it from a business perspective, it was a mistake to allow how I felt about those people cloud my judgment in a business decision, which should have been very much just a math problem. So there's another learning there for people who don't want to experience what I experienced. Please don't. Keep the warrants. Two years, the acquirer of those pieces could end up doing pretty well. And you could have like, two, three million extra dollars in your pocket. Why not? See, Will, wasn't that fun? We're ripping the scab. <laughs> that was great. So you talk about your kids and caring about your kids and I actually wanted to... I want to ask yeah. another question okay. about the clothes yeah. though. So did you learn anything? <laughs> More scab. Not actually the scab piece. More actually okay. the lesson. So I've been in different deals, nowhere near as big as yours. Do you have an opinion now on the right balance of lawyer attributes to look for between aggression, detail-oriented, because some are slower, etc. But let's say you were going to go into the deal again. I understand you've learned your lessons. Is there someone new attributes you'd look for in lawyers when you're going to close? 
okay, yeah, 100%, 100%. There's another lesson in there, which is I could feel I had shitty lawyers, but I was so alone. I had nobody on my side of the table advising me. My lawyers were asking me what to do. And I was so deer in the headlights, like, who could help me? I felt like I didn't have anyone who understood my situation. I felt very alone. And my lawyers were just like, what do you want to do? I'm like, oh, shit. Okay, here's what we got to do. I'm figuring this out as I go. So in terms of a lawyer team, that was the other thing. I had several lawyers. And so it was your typical lineup, right? The partner, the senior associate, and then the young guns who carry the binders and do all the work. I wish I had somebody on that team who had gone through. That was the other thing. I realized halfway through, nobody had ever sat in my chair on my side and I was alone. And we were halfway through the process by then and I just wanted to be done. And I thought, well, if I switch teams now, it's gonna cost me X more and I don't know what difference it'll make. So I just said, forget it, I'll plow alone on my own. So I wish I'd had someone on my side, on the council side, that had specific experience in what I was dealing with. That would have been worth his weight in gold or her weight in gold. And obviously striking backwards when my deal was getting done, I also had a team, I had a different set of lawyers. I wish the deal team had also somebody with sort of entrepreneur side specific. I mean, they'd sold, they'd been part of, it was a big law firm, da 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 through a friend, all those things. Like, hey, I'm selling my company. I don't know who's going to help me. A friend advised me and connected me to some lawyers. Yay. You know, everything was good because I was about to be in the money. So I wasn't that thoughtful about it. I wish that now looking back on it, there was someone on that team who had specifically been on a deal like mine. So this lawyer team, these were your lawyers that you specifically chose and hired for your negotiations? Or... Both times, yeah. I hired okay. both sets of lawyers. The first, the deal team lawyers to sell my business were through a friend and they were fine. They were, I mean, I realized later they were clowns because I didn't have the kind of language I needed for my earnout. There was specific labor law language that wasn't in my earnout that if you had a specific labor attorney would have said, dude, you want it crystal clear what the stage is. Because for that amount of money, it was worth it for the Canadians to be like, eh, we're done like you. We're going to make these claims. And they actually didn't have a leg to stand on, but they did because the language in my earnout was just vague enough to say, yeah, we just didn't like the way you were doing it. And according to the terms, we can contest your earnout. I'm like, fuck. And then later, right, of course, later, I meet a labor attorney in California who's like, look, this is the language that you should have had. It's this kind of language. And I'm like, oh, great, thanks. I meet you three years later, <laughs> after all. And then the negotiating lawyers in the lawsuit with bankruptcy, it was another corporate team, different set of lawyers. And they had, they were bankruptcy team, but it was an international bankruptcy. So they just weren't the right guys. And I was, I'd, yeah. The net of it is, to answer your question, I wish I'd picked different lawyers who had specific experience in my situation. And I shouldn't have been in a hurry just to get the team to keep it moving to fight. I should have slowed it down for myself to have gotten the right people because I think I would have had even a slightly better outcome. And I wish someone had told me not to sell those warrants. That was helpful. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> and now I will go shoot myself again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, before we move on, I'm just going to pick up the scab one more time. I'm understanding like how upset you were, but like maybe you can just 
describe to us, like put us in that situation for us. Like basically, you had basically that money already coming in your bank account in the next three years, right? And then having that money taken away, you probably had life plans for that money already and, and not having it anymore. Can you just kind of walk us through a little bit about what that what your life was like or what you were emotionally feeling just so that we can understand a little bit? I didn't have kids then. So I didn't have any other plans other than going on vacation with my wife and partying a little and just trying to enjoy. Because I was coming off a five-year trip that I thought was going to be maybe 18 months. I think that's the other thing too is I was pretty tired when I was going into that phase of that deal. And I was just so happy to be done with it. I didn't have a lot of plans after that because it was on the heels of family situation, my parents and their blow up. And it was just such a, it was a hard time. It's definitely the darkest time of my life, not even just in terms of career or work. It was hard. So I really didn't have much vision into the future. I was just so happy to have that hot potato out of my hands that when it happened with this, I'm so funny, you know, people can be uh, melodramatic and narcissistic and woe is me. I sold the business and then I was like, of course, what more Eeyore thing could happen than that? You're selling this thing. It was like the last little kick in the butt on the way out of this problem. So I couldn't see past getting rid of it. Thank you for sharing. Oh, yeah, yeah. You guys are going to have to get me a box of chocolate <laughs> Christmas now. I thought this was going to be a light and froofy talk about how wonderful life is three years later. <laughs> yeah, so life is different three years later, right? And I just want to set some context. In the last episode, part one, we talked about your upbringing and how you went to private school. You went to Harvard Westlake, which is the top private university or private high school in Los Angeles. And then you went to Stanford. And then you went to Harvard Business School. And then you basically went that route. You had kids here in LA and they were on their way through the private school systems to basically eventually go to the top private schools here in LA as well. But you decided to basically take them out of school and then bring them up to rural Washington and live a completely different life. And I thought that was very admirable because it it felt like to me personally that you kind of were living by your own principles and by your own values. But I, I wanted to kind of ask about Why did you do that? Yeah, I still ask myself that question sometimes, man. (laughs) I do think all people in their lives create narratives for themselves. And when they look back, pieces that might not have fit before, they can kind of make fit to be able to be seen inside the frame of a nice painting. Looking back now, we're in a good spot. We're lucky as a family, and I'm very grateful for that. Basically, right after that first podcast, COVID, and really what inspired the actual move was, I have to say, was COVID. I had lingering doubts because I was pretty sure in my own mind, like, oh, we want to be a different family. We don't want to be like everybody else. And I started already that process by doing a lot of travel with my kids and my wife. And every time we'd been on a road trip somewhere, right, we did 45 out of 50 states. We did 40 national parks. We did 500 days of travel in two years. I'd always tease, I'd say, hey, could you see yourself living here? Because we could. And my kids learned to just ignore me after a while. I was like, no, 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 we want to go home. And so I'd always dreamed about doing something because we had that luxury of choice. I wanted to take advantage of that. But the truth is, we were mailing it in. And every time I thought about it, the actual getting past the notion of it and actually doing it was pretty daunting and scary. But COVID, thankfully, in a weird, horrible way, as horrible as that was for the world, kind of kicked me into gear and helped me 
with looking back on it, thinking how brave we were. But the reality is when COVID hit, we'd stopped all our travels. I was in the middle of looking at getting an RV because I thought we were going to travel even more and do some time on the road like van life. But we got stuck. We did 100 days straight at home. My awesome wife, Yen, made the best of it. And we had a lot of fun and she posted pictures and we did crazy things and crazy dress up dinners. And she just, we made the best of it being home. But we definitely got cabin fever because we were a family that was used to being out and traveling and learning from travel. And I was probably the, your typical kind of want to be educational dad because I'm always talking to them about what are you learning from this and, <laughs> and this stuff like that. And luckily my kids were small, so they put up with it. They're teenagers now, so there's no way they would do that again. But we got sick of being in the house. And so why did we move? We didn't move initially. We just said, hey, this sucks. You're in online school anyway. And my kids, none of them did well with it. So we started with the idea of just another road trip, which is what we did well before. So we packed up the car, loaded up our bikes, and set off north with a general idea of a destination to meet friends in Portland where we were going to form a COVID pod. We booked just an Airbnb. And the reason we picked Portland was nothing other than I was at the time advising pretty actively a company that was doing, the CEO is a great friend of mine, still is, doing COVID tests. And I'm not breaking anything private or illegal, but I got to know how he was feeling about the data. And he said it wasn't good. And this is before the vaccines. And I said, well, crap, I think I want to get out of Dodge. And he's like, yeah. And I said, where should we go? And he said, well, the COVID in Washington has already peaked. I wish I could say I'd done a lot of research and thought through and knew that this is where we were going to go. But literally it was, we had friends in Portland and the COVID was better up north. And so we just set off with that as the plan, nothing more strategic than that. And then back on the road, I could feel my family kind of coming back because they're good travelers. Like I said, with all that travel we'd had under our belts, being on the road again with the dog and the kids, it was pretty crazy. It was like pull over to a gas station so my daughter could play the cello with virtual music class at Westridge. It was funny like that. Oh, we're in class, but we're going over a mountain. So I might be taking a bathroom break because I'm going to lose coverage on our way down into Yosemite Valley. By the way, I will say this, meaningful experiences. I told my kids, we saw Yosemite Valley during COVID when there was no one around. I told them, I don't know if they'll remember this, but we saw Yosemite Valley without people. So that was one of these little, an anecdote of the side benefits of this crazy trip we took. But we ended up in Portland and I joked again and I said, do you guys want to live up here? And the first answer was no, no, no. Because we were all in the mindset that we were just on another trip and they'd been trained to say no. But this thought had been lingering in my mind anyway about kind of what we were doing and was it the right thing? And this will be a way more analytical. I won't name names, but Will, you could probably name the person that I'm thinking of. But someone we know, very analytical type. Everyone kind of sees this guy as like a sage of our one of our friend groups. And his analysis would be very much like, well, for college admissions, you want to be at the right kind of schools to get in the right kind of colleges. And that's just, I felt like the anti that guy. And so while we were traveling, being away from it, and physically, both physically and mentally being away from it, started to build the momentum behind the idea of actually jumping off that train. So COVID really was, I think, the an analogy, like a fire analogy, whatever that thing, an accelerant. So COVID accelerated this notion for me. I'd like to say, oh, it was my plan all along. But really accidentally, finding this place where we are now, giving 
my kids and my wife the option to say, hey, let's start first as an experiment. We all liked it up here. We had a good time. We were in a COVID pod. And then just kind of having the space to enjoy it, being outside, and then saying, oh, it doesn't have to be permanent. I know it's scary, but I bought a house up here and we didn't sell our house in LA because I wanted an escape hatch for my family, my wife and my kids and me, that just in case it was a mistake, that we could come back home because we still considered home Southern California at that time. So yeah, rambling too much. Why did we leave? Mostly accidental, but partially this thing was kind of gnawing at me anyway about is this what we really want? And having the space to discover that, it sounds crazy. I thank COVID for giving me the balls to give that a try. It was something gnawing at me before and it's something that we got to try. And in, and in trying, even as that hedge after the year, you know, we did a family vote. The family voted to stay up here and it's made all the difference in the world. What was gnawing at you? Two things in different directions. On the one hand, it was, hey, this whole college, when the kids are little, it's easy. You change diapers, they learn their ABCs. Being a good parent is taking them to the mountains to go play in the snow. But as they grow and they grow quickly, are you in the right schools? And, and, you know, I had gone to the quote-unquote right school. I should get my kids into the right school and they need to go to the right college or they're going to have a shitty life. And when you're living in a peer group where everyone says that as well, that becomes truth. And if you don't believe the truth, you believe in a lie. And I wasn't sure about that because I played the game. I followed the rules. I went that way and everything worked out. So if I don't do that, the corollary is it probably won't work out. I will be a dad that makes my kids have a horrible life. Like who wants that over their heads? But at the same time, so part of me is like, oh my God, if I don't do what everyone else is doing, I'm a bad dad. My kids will have a horrible life. But the other part that was gnawing in the other direction was, I don't know that that's true. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to put my kids on that train because the fact is, I didn't have a great time doing it, but I wasn't that thoughtful about it because it was like, do it or you're going to die because I grew up in an immigrant family that was poor. (laughs) So it was pretty binary for me. But my kids have a very multifaceted set of opportunities. They're just, they're lucky. They don't have that immigrant first generation fear factor. In fact, I've made it a point, both my wife and I, I think, have been pretty good this whole time with them to not have them live in fear. And so the other part that's gnawing me is like, wait a second, if I do this, yeah, okay, I'm doing it like everyone else, but dude, I don't know if they're going to be happier this way. I mean, most people that I knew when I was doing the grind, none of us were happy. We weren't even expecting that happiness would be part of our equation, that we could even have that as an expectation along the way. It was always deferred gratification. It's very Asian. So I'd like to think now, oh, I was brave. I made the right decision. But you know, I had my fear and anxiety about that as a parent. I wasn't sure. And luckily, COVID gave me liquid courage. COVID helped us nudge in that direction. And I got to say, at least for our family, so far, at least it's worked. I'm very grateful for it. Because there's a few things there, right, Joe? Like, I'm curious about the decision. Sounds like you guys are happy with it. Now, obviously, you've stayed there and things have worked out. It sounds like very democratic. You guys did a family vote. The kids wanted to stay. So there's that portion of that decision. And then probably between you and Yen personally. But, you know, as Will mentioned, the kids are probably everything to you now. And so digging a little bit further into the latter in terms of you're saying you're doing it how everyone else is doing it now. Can you kind of expound on that? Does that mean, you know, in your friend groups, 
are people mostly trying to give their children a more balanced life? One without fear, right? Because I don't have kids yet. And I find it fascinating. Everyone tells me, oh, no, my kids are not going to have electronic devices. Like, we're going to make sure that they still have that hunger. We're not going to obviously like put them through hell, but we're still going to have them do like the afternoon, like SAT classes, violin, sports. But then once they have a kid, a lot of that goes out the window, right? And people change in terms of what they decide on in terms of how they educate their kids. So one is, is that something that's like a trend, you know, amongst like your peer group? And then two, yeah, tell us a bit about kind of how you've been raising your kids and how that's kind of playing out right now. Okay, wait. So first, I would say the ground we're treading out for adults with parents who would be listening to The Wild Show, this is a minefield where every step is filled with trepidation on the parents' part because they want to do it right and they've only got one chance to raise their kids. So let me caveat my words with, I recognize this is a minefield. There is no right answer. I can't tell anybody that I'm doing it right. I can say I lived a path and I've consciously, and I'm glad for it, my wife and I and my kids have consciously together left that path and have taken a different path. And for us, it feels good. And that's enough for us to keep going. It feels good, but the part where I had fear, let me say, there's fear. I don't want to screw up my kids. Like they're the most important thing I got going on. I've hung up my career work-wise. I've made them my top priority. And so making decisions on their behalf of where we live, how we do it, oh, those are big decisions for me and my wife. And so I guess I can't say that enough is I don't know that there is a single right path. I can say for my own family, having gone through, let's call it plan A, I wasn't sure that plan A was necessarily right for my next generation because plan B, for us, it felt like a better choice. It fraught with its own risk, but at least so far, having been on plan B for three years, they're happy, my wife is happy, it's good for us, and looking back, A is definitely not a fit for us. Can you describe the differences between plan B and plan A? Sure. Plan A is you got to grind. You got to get straight A's. You need 1600 on the SATs. And if you don't get into Stanford, you suck. That's the guilt that a child feels running the gauntlet. Plan B is, listen, you got to find your path. And your job as a child in our household is to explore and search. Just find your own path. And it doesn't have to be an Ivy League. It doesn't have to at all. If it does, cool. But <laughs> it's just not where we live now. Like we really live in the boot. I hope a future episode of The Wild Show happens in the wild because you can come to my house, we can do it outside and you won't see people. You won't see houses, you won't see cars, you'll see deer and my dog. Send us the location. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> oh, We yeah. should have done that for this episode, honestly. <laughs> Plan B is, it's just different. The cohort of children my kids live with now, they're wonderful. Look, Plan A's kids, we had friends in those places too. They're lovely people. Children were lovely. They're nice people. And my kids had good friends there. They missed them. And all three of them are still connected through social media with some of these kids. And it's cool. I've probably already upset some of your listeners with being so overstated about Plan A. I'll bet you deep down inside, that's Plan A for a lot of parents. It wasn't a fit for us anymore because I don't think that that kind of pressure and that kind of stress for what ends up being less than 5% of your adult life is worth it. And it's easier for me to say it because I ran the gauntlet. I did everything 
that anybody in plan A would want. And I can't say that I for sure am happier than if I had done my own plan B. So I'm giving my kids plan B. And who knows, maybe they grow up and it's like, you know what, plan B sucked. Being out in the woods, no way. I want my kids in private school. I want them to go to Ivy League because I went to, you know, state school, whatever. Maybe. And maybe the world comes full circle and one of them goes down plan A. That's cool. If that's their path, that's their path. For me, raising my kids with my wife, with my specific three, being out in the woods, being in a cohort where a four-year college and an Ivy League is not the end-all be-all. I mean, my children have friends who literally want to be nurses, which is amazing. That's a great path. If you want to be a nurse, be a nurse. Don't be afraid that because you don't want to go into investment banking, you're a failure. It's like, "Mm, no, that's not this world out here. People don't even know what investment banking is where we live. No offense. Now there's probably some people near where I live who are offended, like, we know what banking is. Either way, someone's going to get upset. So too bad. Sorry. This is just me and my opinions. So that's plan A. We're on plan B and it works for us. So any negatives of plan B that you've seen or that you're worried about? You cannot impulse buy when you live in the woods. Like we live pretty poor. (laughs) Every trip, it's a haul. Do you have Amazon Prime or do they not service your location? Oh, yeah, that's a great. So it's funny you mentioned, I think I told Will about this before when we saw each other recently. The broker who sold this property, one of the things she was so excited about was, if you buy this place, by the time we close, you should get Amazon. And I was like, what do you mean? And where we live at the time, this is 2020, even in 2020, where we live, Amazon was only delivering to the gas station to Amazon lockers. We didn't have Amazon delivery when we bought the house but we have it now. So, hey, we're in civilization. So you were talking about the immigrant fear factor, kind of living a new life and how it affected you as a founder didn't really support the idea of happiness. Did you know any non-Asian founders in the same position and was happiness part of the equation for them? In that question, the first guy I think about was my co-founder who was white and Jewish. And he grew up in a very well-to-do household, but who knows if it was Jewish, it was, well, well, who knows what. But he was Caucasian in my mind, regardless of his cultural, religious background. And the pressure for him was the same. He'd grown up very similarly. And that was, I think, one of the reasons we were, we were good as co-founders. We had that shared sense of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. So I didn't know any around that time. That was a million years ago. But as I think about it now, when you ask that question of people that I knew, all the people that I knew who were founders of startups at that time in the late 90s, everybody was gunning for the same thing, full bore, 1,000% a day. Nobody was going, I'd like to be happy. So no, not really. Everyone I knew at that time was gunning hard. And I think even today, I don't know, but if I had to bet, I would venture to say anybody starting a business in Silicon Valley or elsewhere If you want to be one of those baby sea turtles and you want to jump into the ocean and you want to come back to lay your eggs as a giant someday, man, you've got to be really focused on staying alive. There's no talk or time or spare moments to think about relaxing, enjoy, like, nah, man, it was gunning all the time. So you had a family vote after a year and your daughters ended up wanting to stay. Could you tell us why? Yeah, hopefully they'll hear this someday in this luxury studio in Hollywood. Okay, so the story in the vote. Okay, because my kids someday might hear this, and I hope they do, I'm going to come clean and say I did commit bribery. It was not just a clean vote. 
I have three daughters and obviously my lovely wife. My wife's super supportive. She's so awesome. She was like, hey, you know what? If you guys want to do this, we're in. Let's fucking do it and go. So she was green, even though she had the most to lose because she had already left her family in Asia and built a new life and completely constructed an amazing life for her and us in LA. And she was willing to just punt it to give this a try because she's got an amazing adventurous spirit. But kids are kids. So luckily, the beachhead of my three daughters was one of my three, my middle daughter. She had just this glimmer of my wife's kind of spirit. And she's like, you know what? This is cool. Plus, she liked the house. We stumbled upon this place. And she and I were in love with where we presently live. It just, you guys will see it someday. This is a podcast, so there's no pictures. But she and I fell in love with this environment. And so she said, I'm in. I don't know, middle school girls, their friends are important. How could you uproot us? COVID's not going to be forever. And so my little one's like, all right, if I vote yes, we go. I want alpacas. And they said, okay, so we have five, we're on five acres. So I'm like, all right, done. If you vote yes, I'll get you alpacas. Then, of course, we proceed to get the house and then we start researching. And I had said yes before I had done the research. You cannot just get one alpaca. You have to get a minimum of three because they're herd animals. And I'm like, oh, okay, expletive, expletive. I did not sign up for three alpacas because we have neighbors who have alpacas. So we went to visit. They're really cute. They don't spit like llamas. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I came back to my baby and I said, listen, I owe you alpacas. And then she goes, yeah, and I want a dog. And I'm like, okay, so... In the end, luckily, she's very forgiving. I still owe her the alpacas, but we did get a dog and we foster cats in lieu of the alpacas. So that's actually, I feel a little bad to be true to my deal, be good on your deal orientation, especially if they hear this. It's on the internet forever. I still have not fulfilled that part of the bargain, but that's how we got here by the vote. You mentioned to me in one of our talks walking around Culver City was like, I think Harvard Westlake had suicides, right? Or Yeah, it's tough. I don't want to talk about a scab. I don't want to talk about that too much because that was not in the news a lot because there's things like copycats and it's a really sensitive thing. But that school is not an easy place. And they had a string of three deaths in a school year and a half, I think. I don't know the exact dates and et cetera. And that's not for me to get into. But yeah, I feel my heart aches for those, uh, oof, just horrible, those families and the friends and those children, it's tough. Plan A is not for everybody. And extreme cases, plan A can be lethal. So yeah, it's horrible. My heart aches for those families. That takes me to kind of like your parents. And I know that plan A, basically, your path was plan A for your parents. And through that experience, even though you did end up achieving a good amount, the relationship between your parents weren't always good. And part one kind of describes some of that relationship. And I think that's probably why you've shifted, right? You need to change the way that you've done things because the relationship comes first over achievement. And that's why you're in Washington and you're building your relationship with your daughters because you're trying to change that like path, right? Yeah, we're, I'm having like emotions are coming up. I'm going to start crying. I got to pause and like cough to the side for a second because what I'm recognizing while we're doing this, I think I even said it in the first podcast three years ago that talking to you guys, there's probably a reason that plan B happened for my kids because I was a product of plan A. Absolutely. I never really connected it like that. 
But just the way you're saying it now, psychotherapist Dr. Will Chang. Yeah, yeah, there's probably something there. I probably lean them towards plan B to not have them do plan A because plan A was hard. I found plan A extremely hard. Yeah, actually ties into my third subject that I wanted to bring up is your relationship with your parents today. In part one, we talked about how you're kind of like the in-between your dad and your mom as they're getting a divorce. And you've been spending a lot of time with your parents today. Could you kind of talk about like why and what you're doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so last time was two parts. This time, three parts. Part one, pick at a scab and learn about what not to do in the closure of the sale of your business. Part two, how to do plan B. Plan B for me was hide in the woods. And then part three, with parents, and this is universal, I do hope younger listeners tune into this section because everybody gets old, everybody dies, and this is a hard one, elder care. Three years ago, both my parents were extremely, well, relatively vital and still all there. And over the last three years, my father's developed late onset Parkinson's. Sucks. (laughs) More tears are coming. I'm going to sing and look up at my ceiling so this stays light and airy. But People, when they lose their health, I mean, it sucks. And my dad is really not even a shell of what he was three, even three years ago. I mean, it's hard. So I think I said this to you, I'll say it again here. We went through all this great triumphant move and we're going into the woods and we're having this new adventure. And my mom calls me and says, I think something's wrong with your dad. And they start doing tests. They go to the doctors and things aren't right. And basically, by the time we finished moving up, I started flying back down to LA on a pretty regular basis. At the time, it was like every month, and now it's pretty much like every other month to help my mom with my dad. So what's going on? My dad's sick. We're all going to die. He's going to die. And it's a horrible disease. It's a horrible situation for him. And we're just trying to do the best we can with it. That's a good thing. You can't see me cry because it sucks. It's very unfortunate and very sorry to hear that, Joe. How does that, I guess, affect or make you think about your relationship with your kids? That's great to bring it back to them. It definitely makes me ever present in the sense that whenever I forget and lose myself and I become Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde plan A, and I, you know, whenever Tiger Dad comes out, I'm like, you must work harder. You must be a champion. Plan A comes out. And then like, I'll get a text from my mom that I got to fly home again. And when you're changing a diaper and it's this time it's your dad and not your kid, sort of like, you know what? Plan A is stupid. In the end, he doesn't give a shit about plan A. He doesn't give a shit about where I went to college. You know, my dad's just happy to probably even see me when he recognizes me because he's got dementia as well now. So it helps in the sense that seeing somebody at the end of their life, you think about your own life in very different terms. All those startup guys, when I was startup guy 30, 25 years ago, there's no way I could have paid any attention to that. I couldn't to make my business work. I had to be 100% on for the enterprise. And there was a time in a chapter of a life where that makes all the sense in the world. If you want to go for it, go for it. Be a man or whatever. Be a startup person. But later, when you've got less than half a tank left yourself and you see somebody you love on empty, ah, man. Elder care is the great equalizer. None of that matters anymore to him or to me. And so to relate it back to the kids, I don't want to spend any time that doesn't 
mean anything. Oh, look, we've got more time. Let's tell some jokes. One of the things that was unique to you, I think unique in like your experience as we've, because you've come down to LA a few times and while you're here visiting your parents, I've been talking to you and you've also been taking your parents on trips. And so I would just love for you to kind of talk about that because that's quite unique. Yeah. So since the diagnosis over the last three years, I've been going back pretty regularly, really just to help my mom get a break. Before he had full-time care, my mom was the primary caregiver and it was just hard on her, hard on him, just hard. So I can't take credit for it. In her own wisdom, in her own way, my mom recognized like, hey, we got to mix this up because this is it. You know, she's, we're at the end. So it was her idea. She was probably more calculating, but this is my mom. And people out there maybe have moms with similar traits that just go, oh my God, me too. My mom goes, hey, I put a deposit down on a cruise and I was constantly thinking, you know, your dad would get better, but I got to use it or lose it. I'm going to lose my deposit. So we're going to go on a cruise. You know, will you help me and take your dad on a cruise? And so, of course, like the answer is yes. And I don't have an excuse because I'm working or running a business. I can't say, oh no, my company needs me. So I'm like, yeah, for sure, let's do it. So we had done this many, many years ago with my own kids. And so we redid a river cruise where we flew to the middle of the country and got on a boat. And I guess what I would say is as much as it wasn't a fun trip for me, what I did feel was like I had front row seats at touching epilogue to my parents' life and their marriage. They had a really rough, they had an amazing go of it. They're immigrants, worked hard, all the poverty stories. They went through a shitty divorce. They literally were at one point clawing each other's veritable eyes out. They had a really rough time. And now at the end, she's spoon feeding him his pudding. Like what a crazy story. I don't want that with my wife, at least the gouging part, the spoon feeding the pudding, I'll take that. But they got that. So as a son, having watched it my entire life, where even I was an advocate who would have said if anyone had asked me that they should just split up. The, the fact that they got this finale, if you will, it was touching. I'm glad I got to see it. I love to tease my mom. We've got a very interesting relationship because I think she's crazy and being with her straight for two weeks, it wasn't easy for me, but it was great to be there with them to see it. Really just Almost like as a spectator, I would say. Like, I love my parents, right? Still don't get along with them per se. My dad's gone. So I, I don't really even think about him like I would ever have an argument with him. Like when he has dementia and he gets upset about stuff, I don't see him the way he was. I see him for who he is now and I'm with him. Shit straight, man. I'm with him for this finish. Thank you for sharing, Joe. Yeah. I always really appreciate how honest you've been and how open you are. And I think your ability to do that and be able to share and also do it in a storytelling, entertaining way has really helped me. I think Lee and Andrew, you agree too, right? Yeah, no, yeah, for definitely. sure. I mean, it's funny. It's something where, yeah, having known Joe and just, I think you get a lot of different sides. Of it. And, and then the, I think the genuineness in that he expresses himself very unapologetically is something that is a rarity. And I think it is a product of his entire story his childhood, and then having his own kids, and now kind of juggling both fostering like the future of his children and also handholding his parents in the twilight of their lives, I think is, you know, it's a journey that we're all going to be on. And so it's just, yeah, we're lucky to be able to get a lot of this realism from Joe and to be able to 
hopefully take it also as it comes to us. So it's just the realities of life. I love how you guys are talking about me like I'm already dead. Um, <laughs> that was awesome. I love you guys. Thank you. Please say that at my funeral. It'll be a celebration. <laughs> and Drew, you haven't said wonderful things about me, man. It's your turn now. Uh, you know, this is like the last couple minutes before we cue the music. <laughs> I'll do a compliment and then I'll ask you a question. So I'd say the compliment that I have that I hope actually hits is you're very self-deprecating. And when you switch to telling stories about the things that matter to you, they're actually extremely matter of fact and they are rooted in deep actualization. Like you've really hit the edges of everything. So I think you should stop being so self-deprecating because it's pretty phenomenal. And it's amazing that we got to discuss those aspects. I didn't think that this is where today was going and we've hit part three. I thought we were going to be telling jokes and now given us that the new story and uh, you're continuing to share. So thank you. Thank you, Joe. (laughs) My question is very subtly, very delicately, how was equalizing? Because I think a lot of people are equalizing with their parents or watching them equalize with each other. So like, can you share some about, I don't know, tips or how it went or if the switch just flips because, you know, you see it and everything becomes clear. Yeah. Thank you for asking that because I'll need to recollect myself in help mode. I can be more thoughtful and curate an answer that will hopefully help your six listeners. So maybe 10 now because my kids will listen someday. So you'll have at least 10. (laughs) So it's a great question. And it's a great point because everyone out there, if they decide to go for it, have kids, everyone's going to have parents that pass. Some of you may also have kids and you may become that someday. So that full circle aspect of you call it equalization. Definitely the point for me was when I saw the beginning stages of my dad's dementia. My parents, when I grew up, were pretty vocal people, at least in the home. My dad and mom could really let each other have it verbally. And I think that the first time I could see my father lose, we all lose our train of thought. We all joke about senior moments, but I saw dementia for the first time in my dad. And that's when I knew this is now a different person and how I treat him and how our own kind of finish together needed to be different because I could never have an argument with him. The guy was in his 70s and he and I would go at it about Fox News or something else. And even in his 70s, you know, he was the kind of guy that was like, you want to take a swing? Not physically, but like, you want to argue about something? Bring it, right? That was the kind of dad I had, for better or for worse. I love him. Although when I was growing up, that was tough. But that first episode where he had like a demented moment where he just like, he was not there. He was like, he was lost and he was scared. So what do you do? It's inevitable and everyone will handle it differently. And the best advice I can give is actually to not worry and think about that and try and spend the time you have before you reach that moment with them. Enjoy the verbal battles. Enjoy the fight about whatever stupid Christmas gifts or something. I don't know. All of it seems so stupid to me now because I definitely had arguments with my parents for years, all the things we argued about. And all of it seems so stupid now because it's gone. He's gone and I miss him. Here we go again, back and forth, the emotional yo-yo wild show. So yeah, that's what I would say is just, you can't worry about it because it's inevitable. And so you just got to stay present. And even if someone's being difficult in your life, not even parents, everybody around you, man, we all end up somewhere in that when you finish that 18th hole, 
we all end up at the 18th hole to use a golf analogy. I don't play golf, so I don't know if that fully applies. But so my advice would be, don't worry about when it happens because when it does, it'll be too late. Enjoy it now. Thank you. Is there anything else, Joe, that we haven't talked about that you want to talk about? No, I'd like to thank you guys very much. This was a wonderful show. There's a dinner show happening in two hours and I'll be on the Aloha deck if you'd like more information. I want to, my side by saying, I'm humbly honored that anybody, let alone the famous three you guys, would be at all interested in this self-deprecating Andrew for humor's sake. But thank you for letting me share. Thank you for letting me be a part of your show. I feel very honored that you guys came back three years later to find out the next episode. It's a happy ending so far come back in another five years. We'll do the show here in the woods. I'm grateful for the three of you. I'm grateful for this opportunity. And I genuinely hope from the bottom of my heart, if anyone has actually stayed through this entire hour plus, that they get something valuable. I wish we'd have had more jokes in between. Next time we'll tell jokes. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Yeah, by the way, like you've met some of my friends this past Friday. You came down to LA, you met some of my friends. And a couple of them were starstruck because they listened to that first episode. And they were so like touched by that. They remembered who you were and they were actually starstruck when they met you because of that first episode. And oh, yeah, yeah. I autographed a few napkins. <laughs> they were really nice. But yeah, this one was amazing. And I really appreciate your vulnerability and your honesty. And yeah, it was really, really awesome. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. I love you guys. I really appreciate it. Someday when I'm gone, you guys are all younger than me. So tell my kids I wasn't that bad when they were teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you. All right. All right. Guys, take care. All right. All right. Bye. Thank you so much for listening until the end. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It'll help more people like you find us. You can find more about us on wild.show, WLD.SHOW. Please subscribe to our newsletter or DM us on Twitter. We'd love to get to know you. 